Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 forward. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually don't, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? <laughs> it's taken the entire season for the secret of Leicester City's success to be revealed. But finally, thanks to George Calkins' article in the Irish or in the Times in London today, I should say, we have an answer. Their thrilling, logic-defying run to the top of the table can be put down to one man, Murph and Ken. Who is? Not Jamie Vardy. Mm-hmm. Not Riyad Mahrez. No, Ken. N'Golo Kante. No, and not even Claudio Ranieri. Robert, Robert Hood. No, no. Casper Schmeichel. Richard III, King of England from 1483 to 1485 is the man that we have to thank for seeing Leicester at the top of the table. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Uh, shock, outrage at this comment. Well, after being discovered in a nearby car park, Richard III's remains were interred inside Leicester Cathedral on March 26, 2015. Okay. Uh-huh. Since the King's reburial, Leicester have lost three league matches only. Right. As pointed out by Colkin today in this piece. Uh, so he goes around, he walks around Leicester trying to get a feel, trying to gauge the temperature of the, the people, the city of Leicester, see how excited and nervous they are. Mainly nervous now that they actually have a chance of winning this thing. So Rebecca Hale, a volunteer manager at the Cathedral, she's a season ticket holder, she says the team are going through a bad patch when Richard was reinterred. And perhaps there was less focus on that. It is possible that the good feeling, the pride, rubbed off. I wouldn't go further than that, but it does feel like there's a correlation. The odds are against finding Richard and Leicester City are the great underdogs too. Right? Not only that, Gary Silk of the Fox fanzine has gone to the, had gone to the service when Richard was reinterred. You could feel the weight of history, he said. It's shaped us a little bit. Look up the road. They've got Robin Hood. Perhaps we've got somebody now. <laughs> yeah. So I like this. Civic pride has been restored mm. by finding he's Richard most, III's... Re- yeah, he's not the most devastating physical specimen that's ever, uh, you know, been King of England though. No. Um, well, apparently, uh, all that hunchback stuff was made up by his uh, political enemies to, um, you know, make people think that he wasn't uh, wasn't cut out for it. Yeah. Um, obviously, he starred in a uh, as a baddie in a famous play. Mm-hmm. Um, you could almost say, Owen, now is the winter of Lester's discontent, <laughs> made glorious summer by the burial of their king. Well, the discovery, the discovery of those remains mightn't have been great news for the king himself, Ken. 
Um, well, like, he's dead now. Well, yeah, well, I, it, you know. I, I, I remember reading about it when it happened, and I think they dug him up, and, and his his skull had been had had a damn good thing too. Well, there was also it, it looked as though he'd had a fairly violent end. There was also someone I'm reading a BBC story doing. There was a BBC story here that says there was analysis of his DNA done, which is thrown up a surprise evidence of infidelity in his family tree. Scientists who studied genetic material from remains found in the Leicester car park say that this finding might have profound historical implications depending on where in the family tree it occurred. It could cast doubt on the Tudor claim to the English throne or indeed on Richard's. Oh, yeah. Presumably Richard's claim. That's pretty... As you're saying, we're a bit late now for Richard. I mean, Richard got there, got a couple of years in. How disappointed will he be to <laughs> be stripped of his, uh, his reign and, you know, moved from the car park? I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it's not going to have a massive impact on him one way or the other. No. Isn't he the guy who ended up running around looking for a horse? No, that's Henry V, isn't it? Oh, God, I'm showing my ignorance here. You are my, fa- my father is literally... You should have known better than to... Uh, Wait a second, it is Henry V, is it? You're listening to the Irish Times Second Cabins Football Podcast. It's time to report on sport. So, um, I guess the place to start uh, today, Owen, is in the Middle Kingdom. Mm-hmm. The centre of the world... For thousands of years. We obviously out here in the evening lands of the West arrogantly think of ourselves as being the centre of the universe or, or have have had that habit at times that we're, we're working on trying to get out of it. Um, but obviously it's really the Middle Kingdom, as its name implies, which is uh, which has really always been the centre of the world. And it's becoming more obvious that it, uh, it well, it's moving closer towards the centre of the football world as well in recent times. So. so you have seen, I'm sure, all of these uh, stories about football players going to China. Uh, and not just, you know, uh, kind of Indian Super League type names. You know, Bobby Perez has come out of retirement to play, you know, a season or... Um, ex-footballer who's lost all his money gambling and is 35 is going to is gonna uh, crank one more season out. Actually, you're talking about some reasonably credible names, you know? Um, Paulinho. I, I mean, not exactly you know, global all-star quality, but still, Paulinho recently uh, signed for... Uh, Tottenham um, before, you know, more money. In front, in, in front of Tottenham are actually one of the only clubs who pretty have lost money selling their unwanted player to the Chinese league. Um, they paid $22 million and ended up selling him for 14. Uh, Freddie Guarine has joined um, uh, Shanghai Greenland Shenhua from Inter for $14 million. Gervinho has gone um, from Roma uh, over to China. I'm trying to find, I can't remember. What's the bloody name of his club? I had it here. That's all right. Um, for uh, $20 million. Um, and Jackson Martinez. This is the weirdest one of all. Uh, Jackson Martinez was signed by Porto in the summer for uh, like $37 million. Uh, has just gone to Guangzhou Evergrande, who are the Chinese champions, the sort of Manchester United of China. Uh, Manchester United aren't the champions, of course. Um, but you know they they they're the serial title winners. Uh, see, I'm just I'm trapped still in the old ways of thinking. Uh, but uh, they've signed Jackson Martinez for forty five point eight million dollars. Now that is an amazing amazing fee for a player who cost more than that eight months ago, and since then has been a complete disaster for Porto. Gervinho has gone to Hebei Fortune, 
Ah, head by fortune, of course, up near the North Korean border, um, as it is. Gets a bit chilly there in the winter. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as, as some of these uh, northern Chinese clubs do. So what is going on here? Why have these Chinese clubs suddenly started lashing out massive transfer fees? And that's a massive transfer fee. They shouldn't be paying half that even for uh, for Jackson Martinez. So what is what is happening? Who might be involved? What what kind of what kind of person might be expected to have their fingerprints on this new, unexpected, and highly lucrative um, flow of cash in the international transfer market? I sense the specter of a super agent looming. I think there could be. A, I think. I mean, this is the super fees involved might suggest the presence of a super agent. And indeed, uh, so it proves... The super agent? Mr. George Mendez. That's the guy. Mr. George Mendez uh, has been in, has spent a lot of time in China recently. Mr. Jose Mourinho was over there with him uh, doing various photo ops and so on and talking about how this is the new frontier of the global game. Oh my God, if Jose Mourinho becomes the new Guangzhou manager ahead of Manchester United. That's, <laughs> that's got to burn. Yeah. Well, I think there's every chance that, of Jose Mourinho managing uh, Guangzhou Evergrande, actually. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but definitely at some point. He wouldn't have to write six pages worth anyway, I wouldn't have thought. No, I don't think... Yeah. Man United just say, oh, look, we'll just take Pellegrini, I suppose. Um, <laughs> uh, George Mendes has sold a minority share so according to uh, Globo the Brazilian newspaper um, George Mendes has sold a minority share of his company Gestefuch to a Chinese uh, rich guy Guo Guangxiang of the group Fosun uh, George Mendes is nephew explains they've invested in our company we now create a commercial structure with them in various areas we have strong relationships and we'll open doors here it's a broad collaboration, not only to mediate the negotiation of players, but also a very strong commercial basis. Several Chinese companies have invested in Portugal. Now we'll advise them on certain investments in the sport. We will advise them on, advise them on certain investments in the sport, said George Benton is his nephew. The best advice money can buy. Jackson Martinez for $45.8 million <laughs> is only step one. Um, apparently there's a deal in Portugal now where a Chinese company has started to sponsor the second division um, but a condition of it is that each club should have a Chinese player just to sort of try and get things moving a little mm. bit uh, in terms of the sporting development. Uh, as Globosport.com found, it is likely that in addition to Mourinho, also Ronaldo Falcao Garcia, Falcao, remember him, and other stars of George Mendez's uh, company will participate in promotional activities in China in their holiday periods. Uh, the partnership also provides for the opening of football schools and transfer of European coaches eastwards. Um, so this is all from Global. They, they say, uh, if Europe has the traditional football, the Chinese have immediate liquidity. Um, the acquisition of clubs and equity shares in the old continent, say the Brazilians, does not seem to be the most difficult task. All the continents are the same age, really, uh, I would say. But the market is very lively in this sector. Espanol, the latest European club to pass into the hands of the Chinese, as they put it. Uh, the Rastar Group, led by millionaire Chen Yang Sheng, played 17 million euros for 54% of the shares um, and injected 33 more million euros into the second Barcelona club, wanting to get Espanol to the Champions League in three years. Um, the richest man, the, the guy who's considered the richest man in China, somewhat uh, murky sphere of competition, I imagine. Who really knows who the richest man in China is? 
um, chairman of Dalian Wanda Group, became a shareholder of Atletico Madrid, paying 45 million euros for 20% of the shares. The Wanda Group also bought the Swiss company Infront, which controls the rights to uh, FIFA broadcasts between 2015 and 2022. Um, talking now about signing Alex Teixeira, I remember this player Liverpool were trying to sign, oh, decided yeah. that the money uh, that Shakhtar Rosking was too much. Um, Guangzhou now uh, talking about maybe signing him for 50 million euros. Um, also, uh, a big chunk of Manchester City purchased um, by Chinese concern. The chunk of Man City was they paid more for it for I think 20% of the club than the Sheikh had originally paid for Man City in the first place. So that's kind of weird. What is going on? Why would they do this? Um, why? It's not not a question of why do Chinese, why is, does China suddenly want to buy top European players and sort of develop its football league? That's something that's happened in, in other countries and they've tried. But why would they pay so much? That that's the bit that's that's sort of strange. One possible answer is the fact that George Mendes has been engaged as, you know, the advisor. Um, but, but yeah, the idea. The, well, what I would think is that all of the money would go to the players. That the players would get a vast, you know, wage. But that surely the fact of the of the the fact being that the players are not success, are not massive successes in Europe would mean that the clubs surely wouldn't be getting a whole lot of money. But it seems like everyone's making it like a bandit here. Yeah, well, the the, the clubs who are selling players, I mean, Atletico Madrid can't believe they're, look, I imagine this is probably, they, they were probably looking at Jackson Martinez thinking, what are we going to do with this guy? And suddenly, um, you know, a, a league that's never, you know, been signing, ne- has never paid big transfer fees for players, and you know, we'll give you $45 million. Oh, okay. That sounds doable. 45.8? Done. They do the Homer Simpson <laughs> running on the ground uh, uh, celebration a la his uh, negotiations with Monty Burns. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, and, that, and that's been happening. That's that pattern repeated a couple of times. Now, obviously, Mendes is involved. Uh, but really what's happening here is also China being a China isn't like a European country uh, or the United States. It's got a slightly different structure, as we know. It, ha- it has a it's technically speaking still a communist dictatorship. Um, it's not really that communist anymore. Uh, it is, however, a dictatorship uh, in the sense of being a totalitarian state, you know, only one party and, uh, you know, a, a kind of a leader who sets the tone and a government that's kind of all-powerful. That's not to say that you can't make a hell of a lot of money in China these days because you certainly can do that. Uh, however... So it's it's maybe a bit more comparable to Russia in the sense that if the president wants to suggest something, if the president wants to suggest that certain leading businessmen, let's say in Ireland it might be called put on the green jersey. Uh, in China it would be a red jersey, uh, still with that ironic uh, communist star uh, on the jersey, I assume. Uh, but uh, this seems to have been what happened because football maniac Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, uh, has decided that this is something the country should get into uh, as a means of maybe preparing the ground for a possible future World Cup bid um, and maybe a competitive national team to play in that World Cup uh, and maybe also as a way of uh, getting people excited about something other than um, the fact that the economy in China appears to be collapsing at a furious rate. Um, there is an article in the South China Morning Post 
about President Xi Jinping and his love of the game, the beautiful game. We did talk in our earlier podcast today about politicians sometimes claiming the love of a sport for the purposes of ingratiating themselves with sports fans. Yeah. What about our friend here in China? Does he sound, sound genuine? He's known to be a passionate soccer fan, Owen. Okay. His love of, quote, the beautiful game, unquote, may have developed while at middle school as a result of his late father, communist revolutionary Xi Zhongzong, who was also reported to have enjoyed watching matches. Xi Jinping, who was born in 1953, played football while at school in the 50s and 60s and played alongside many second-generation communist revolutionaries, including the grandson of Marshal Jude, who was vice chairman of China. The president's fondness for soccer was influenced by China's previous political leaders, many of whom, including Deng Xiaoping, were football fanatics. <laughs> I didn't realize. I never knew that <laughs> Deng was a football fanatic. Um, one of Deng's speeches in which he said, China's football education should start with children, has been mentioned by Xi in his own speeches. That's a classic football man line. Mm. That, is, as, that is right up there with Sepp Herberger. You know, the ball is round. To go around. And every game lasts 90 minutes. That is, I mean, okay, Sepp Herberger is a World uh, Cup winning German coach. I think Deng sounds just as wise about the game in that, in that sort of gnomic way. Uh, in the 1980s, Xi played soccer less because of his increasing workload. <laughs> it happens to so many of us. Yeah, it really does. Um, so it goes on. In the summer of 1983, he was watching with the friends in the stands in Shanghai as China's national soccer team were defeated 5-1 by an English club site. I think the English club site is probably Watford. Watford went to China on a tour around that time. You know, the Graham Taylor Watford. Um, there's a couple of good articles written about it. Uh, the details of it. But anyway, defeat of 5-1 by English club site. Xi was reportedly angry about the defeat. His friend later recalled in an interview, Xi left the stadium angry and upset. Uh, so his passion for the sport has fired his determination. So it appears as though when you look at the Chinese uh, Super League, a lot of the clubs are owned by these massive uh, commercial concerns. For instance, uh, Shanghai, Shenhua, uh, current majority shareholders, Chinese developer, the Greenland Group, um, you get property uh, property companies, Hangzhou, Greentown, Greentown China Holdings Limited Company, which is owned by real estate tycoon Song Weiping. So um, you're talking about clubs which are owned and backed by massive, massive business and extremely wealthy individuals who it appears have, you know, I'm not suggesting they were all gathered together in one room at any stage, but it appears a general... Uh, message has gone out that maybe it would be good to sign some high-profile players. In the case of signing uh, players to attract attention, to, to sort of create excitement, it's probably better to pay more than to pay less. If you sign Jackson Martinez and you sign him for $6 million, everyone's like, well, he went down the tubes pretty fast. That's what I was going to say earlier on when you asked why would clubs do this, possibly as a sort of a statement. Yeah, a statement that we can afford to buy these guys. This is the start of a new influx of mega money signings, and you hope then that people don't analyze too closely whether or not the market value of that player is what you've actually paid. But who knows? Who knows anything about market value, really? I mean, we were talking just the other night. We'll be talking about the Leicester Liverpool match. The commentators are saying that at the start of that Liverpool squad costs eight times as much as Leicester's. You know, um, so so it's hard to know. But obviously, Mendes is in there as well. Mendes is, is an interesting character. And just to kind of shed a light on the sort of world in which he moves, there was a very interesting piece in The New Yorker uh, this week by Sam Knight. And it was about 
didn't, didn't really have anything to do with football, apart from the fact that one of the main characters in the piece was Dmitry Rybolovlev, who is the owner of Monaco. He's a Russian billionaire, potash owned, since you ask, uh, who came over, came, <laughs> came to Europe in, uh, you know, 10, 11 years ago with his, a lot of, with his Russian dough, uh, uh, sort of setting up in Switzerland. And was sort of at a bit of a loss as to what to do. Himself and his wife seemed a bit socially isolated, didn't speak English, didn't speak French, didn't speak German. Eventually, I think through the wife's uh, dentist, they met this woman who was kind of friendly with them. And, and sort of they started getting into art, the idea of buying art. Uh, and at some point ran into Mr. Yves Bouvier. Mr. Yves Bouvier, he's the other main character in the story. And he ends up acting as a kind of an agent for Rubelovlev, now the Monaco owner, uh, going around buying up priceless works of art. Not priceless, they've got prices, just really high, really expensive works of art, I should say. Uh, and th this relationship goes on for a while. <clears throat> it's really interesting because essentially it came to grief uh, because Rubelovlev was, was under the impression that Mr. Bouvier was acting on his behalf, sort of as his representative. Uh, he was going to. He was going out negotiating prices with the buyers, buying uh, and buying the artworks for Rubelovlev and getting paid in the form of a two percent commission. And if, say, the painting costs a hundred million dollars, two percent is a decent amount of money. Yeah, and he's probably got his travel and all the rest sorted mileage. Tra travel and, and hotels, a lot of that stuff. Decent, decent. Thirty, 30 euro uh, per diem for food. <laughs> um, decent, decent sort of uh, deal on offer. What was actually happening, however, was slightly different. What was actually happening was that Mr. Bouvier was buying the paintings and then, personally, and then selling them to Mr. Rubelovlev at gigantic, <laughs> right. gigantic markups. Uh, he maintains, well, of course, that was the way it was working all along. Of course. Uh, when eventually Rubelovlev starts to, he's like, oh, I want to sell some of the paintings. And the guy's like, oh, it could be difficult to find uh, buyers at those sorts of prices. And he's like, well, I don't understand. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm buying them. I thought we're, you know, we're working off the market right here. You know, if, we, if you can buy them that price, you should be able to sell them that price. It's just trickier selling paintings compared to buying. You know, it's just can sometimes be trickier. And, he, you know, he's, he finds himself sitting at dinner next to some, someone who actually turns out has sold one of the paintings that he's bought and kind of, so how much did you sell it for? <laughs> Turns out this is sort of discrepancy. You know, he's like, wow, I, that's funny because I thought I paid a lot more. Mm, right, okay. So he ends up, um, they end up having a, you know, this is going to be a problem. He, he sits down and tots it up and reckons after investigating the situation that Mr. Bouvier has, that the difference uh, between the prices he's been paying for these paintings and the prices he's been selling them at has over the course of about eight years amounted to how much how much? Just guess how much. How many photos? Do we have a number of paintings? Uh, Is that a number, no? Ah, uh, we're, talking, we're talking about uh, f maybe 50, 40 or 50. All right, so the discrepancy between... So I'm going to say 12 million? A billion dollars, Owen. <laughs> a billion and 45 million dollars. Right. A billion and 45 million dollars. Which is why I thought the, almost the best bit of this story... I mean... So there's this confrontation between the the two guys, their legal teams, and the cops are there. This is something which apparently happens in French uh, law, and Ribelovla is apparently looking at him in disbelief. Uh, and the guy is like, "Oh, you know, 
this is ridiculous. I can't believe we we all knew the score. We all knew how how this situation was working. Uh, so just to read from the um, just to read from the thing, it says according to Bouvier, Rubalovlev avoided eye contact for the entire conversation, except at one moment. But Eve, he said, these markups are worth a Boeing. Later, Bouvier reflected on this. I think uh, in his head, the problem was not that Bouvier made money. This is Bouvier talking. The problem was not that Bouvier made money. It was that he made too much money. <laughs> uh, he essentially said this, like, how could you rip me off for like a billion dollars? <laughs> it's insane. I expected you to rip me off a little bit, but this is just too much. This is crazy. Um, Bouvier obviously denies that, that it was a scam. And this is, he says, uh, <laughs> he says at one point, uh, talking about the uh, the the guy, the writer Sam Knight, is like, you know, this this isn't going to go down well in the art world. You know, they don't like this kind of stuff. You know, this kind of, um, and he goes, oh, well, all these people think they're the best one. Now they know this small Bouvier is better than them, <laughs> and comes out with then the very Walter White like line, um, saying it couldn't possibly have been a scam. You don't understand how paranoid Rublev is. He grew up in you know post Soviet Russia. You can't fool this guy. So he basically says, if I tricked him. I'm not only the best art dealer in the world, I'm also a genius. I'm Einstein. Uh, so uh, I don't know how he thinks that rules out the possibility that he also has tricked him. But anyway, the point is, this is here's the owner of AS Monaco. He's like the kind of rich person who gets a, a, an example of a really super rich person who's got more money than they know where it all is. He can be ripped off by the, to the tune <laughs> of a billion. A billion. <laughs> was that a euro billion. or dollars? A billion dollars, a billion and forty-nine million dollars, four hundred and sixty-five thousand and nine. All right, so you're pushing a million euro there as well. Uh, that is a lot of money. George Mendes, obviously, this guy apparently uses four phones and a BlackBerry. He's got the he, so when at one point when Knight is talking to him, he's got like the, the five phones all sitting on the table in front of him. You know, George Mendes uses four phones. I think people who use four phones, you know, two should be the absolute max, really. If for you, anybody. if you could. You know, if there is a way for you to be part of two conversations at the same time. I mean, if a human being was born with, say, three mouths and six ears, <laughs> I would say it's actually fair enough. You know, I mean, you're but you're missing calls. If you're on a call, you're going to miss the call on I'd the other you, phone. I'd say you don't miss the calls that you, you don't miss the calls that you don't want to miss. I think if you're George Mendez, you, you can quite There's easily call waiting. Yeah. I mean, on the on one phone. I mean, I, I that's. It, it, there, you're in very suspicious territory if you have more than one phone. It's just even more than one, I think. Even more than one. I can see how some maybe a sometimes phone, people have one for yeah. one, one, two different countries, you know. But like George Mendes really can afford to, you know, data roaming. He doesn't really <laughs> care, you know. But but they do screw I, you, it just suggests a level of complexity when you've got that many phones. There's just a level of complexity implied there that if I was a really super rich person, I might be a little really. Can we not just keep it a bit more simple than that? Of course, that is the promise that these people make. Oh, I'll look after everything. Don't worry about you. Don't worry about a thing. There was a very, very famous uh, uh, obituary, wasn't it, written by Hugh Leonard about Russell Murphy, the accountant. Um, Russell Murphy, the, the famous accountant from the from the eighties, who also looked after Gay Burns' money for a while. Uh, Hugh Leonard, he, he was also on, he was one of Hugh Leonard's, Hugh Leonard was one of his clients. Mm -hmm. And he wrote an, an, a touching obituary uh, saying, you know, this guy, Russell Murphy, was an amazing guy. Like, he just took care of everything. Myself and my wife just, you know, 
we when we needed to, you know when we were moving house when we were doing this that and the other. He just listed off all these sort of life events and Russell just listen he was like Jeeves you know don't worry about a thing I'll handle everything <laughs> it, it you know oftentimes when that sort of full on that everything service yeah, yeah. is mm. you know comes at a price it it does you can't get that kind of service for free necessarily expect to pay sometimes through the nose <laughs> Uh, anyway, so look, I wish I wish uh, China well in their uh, collaboration with uh, George Mendes. Let's wrap the report on sport. City dugout is open, motherville. You're a wee Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got my Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got a job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no peep, I take no peep, I take no, I take no, I take no peep. Just what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans, just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grip! He's your biggest fool. Richie's here, Richie, how are you? Owen, how are you doing? You're smiling away there as Leicester City's second biggest celebrity fan after Gary Lineker. Yeah, 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 I called it. Long before it was cool to call Leicester's potential champions, I did it. Was that the start of January? I think it was, yeah, we're just trying to work it out. I think yeah, it was early you're, you're January. Here. Yeah, you, you, I think, reluctantly I, committed to I it. I wasn't as wholehearted as, as, you are as now. I am now, <laughs> yeah. but, but I did say it at one point, yeah. As wonder goals go, um, did you enjoy Jamie Vardy's on... But no, it was a Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant, yeah. Um, and I saw a lot of Twitter discussion afterwards as to whether that was a better goal than the the team goal United scored in the break. What was it Martial's goal? The oh night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if I, if if I had to choose which one, I would prefer to score myself as a striker. Would certainly be Vardy's goal. Well, the the Man United one was funny because it, it struck me that they were never fully in control of what they were doing. It was, like, it was like every pass was almost an inch too far, and I kept thinking it was going to break down. But maybe that's more how you currently view the United team. I just assumed that something was going to go wrong there. But yeah, the Vardy one was amazing. And it's funny that, say, a match of the day afterwards, they, and in a lot of the, the clips you see online, I suppose that Vine only has a certain amount of seconds it can run to, that nobody's focusing on the f- ridiculous touch by Mares before his pass. Mm. You know, there was the finish by Vardy and there was the run by Vardy and the way he's so good at separating himself from centre-halves and giving himself space, then people are saying, oh yeah, but it was all about the pass. And the pass was obviously a nice long ball forward. But the touch before that, the first, the very first touch from Mares was a header that went straight up in the air. He's getting pushed around then by, I think it's Moreno, facing his own goal. He's in this really awkward position defensively. And he goes from that to within two seconds being able to set up a goal by just this outrageous touch with his left foot, which he produces about four or five times a game these days. Well, he's been doing this all season. And... The weird thing is is uh, that he was also there last season, and this, this wasn't happening. You know, the, none of this was happening. This, you know, this time last year, after twenty four games, they're bottom of the league. Um, so, what do you think is actually going on here? I mean, I look at Claudio Ranieri, and he doesn't look to me like he's like a man who's thinking, "I love it when a plan comes together." He's just staring owlishly in disbelief at this situation which he doesn't understand any more than anyone else. He looks like Leicester's most delighted fan. Yeah. Ranieri, after every game. And there's not, you know, I mean, who, who can explain? How can you do that? How, how can you go from the bottom of the league to the top? I mean, I saw, for instance, Martin O'Neill. Um, Martin O'Neill was talking to George Culkin 
in the Times. The Times, George Culkin has, has written a, a piece on Leicester today. Uh, and he's Martin O'Neill, he obviously talked to Martin O'Neill. Um, he said, well, I wouldn't compare them to the Leicester team I managed. I'd compare them to the team I played for, by which he meant uh, Nottingham Forest, who came up from the division below and won the title uh, in their second season back. I think it was the second season. It wasn't the first season, was it? Christ, maybe it was the first thing. But the difference is that the Forrest never spent a season effectively nailed to the bottom of the, of the, of the division that they then won in the next season. It's, it's just bizarre. It, it's I, like I don't have the solution here. I, I haven't seen anything to explain why they were bottom. Like sometimes you think, well, maybe the, the, the position at the bottom wasn't justified at the time and they were eventually going to get out of it. I didn't think that at the time. Um, but if you're looking for for reasons to explain why they are now and like to, to take credit from them. Like there isn't, like they're not benefiting from, from poor officials' decisions or they're not getting a sequence of results which are undeserved. And even the quirkier kind of more subtle things that you mightn't pick up on, like they're not, the timing of their fixtures, they're not coming up against teams when those teams happen to be in a slump or missing players through injury or suspension or any of that stuff. Um, they're deservedly where we are, where, where they are. And I remember... I think they had a sequence of fixtures in December where before that I thought, well, this might find them out. Um, and I think people are probably saying that now because they have City and Arsenal in the next two games. Um, I don't think there's anything that can happen in the next two games, even if it's two defeats, which could question their credentials to be champions. Oh, I think, really? No, I, I, because if, if you were to be consistent, which is something we're not, we're not consistently judging Leicester the way we judge City or Arsenal because... We're, we're, we're assuming that if they, let's say they lose the next two games, it's right, well, they can't be champions because, you know, you lose big games. Well, City have already lost. City were hammered. It was a 4-1 by Tottenham and 4-1 by Liverpool. Yeah, but with Leicester, if they were to lose those two games in a week, it's a six-point swing against City, essentially, and a six-point swing yeah. against Arsenal. But Arsenal's swing in the last, since the 2nd of January, I think there's been a... They were two points ahead of Leicester on the 2nd of January. They're now five points behind. Oh yeah, if, So well, that's a seven-point swing. So again, if we're to be consistent, we say, yeah. well, let's forget about Arsenal. Yeah. They've bottled it. They got top early well, January. If, if I was Leicester, yeah, if I was a Leicester fan, I'd certainly... <laughs> if you told me I could beat Man City and lose to Arsenal, I would certainly be taking that result. I, I think Le Man City are the team to worry about there. Like they, they've, they've shown enough. Like You're not only a potential champion because you can beat City and Arsenal or you can avoid defeat in two, in two difficult games Like you, you, you can win the championship you can win the Premier League even if you draw or lose those games they've shown consistency from the start there hasn't been like a, a purple patch of brilliant results or an awful patch of, 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 of poor ones they've consistently performed if you look at their team like where's their weaknesses where's the, who are they carrying where, 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 where would you say right? we're playing Leicester like defensively they're not like centre half pairing, you, you prefer them than than the two that Man City have uh, got. Well, I think for one thing, you'd you'd stop leaving def defenders alone with Jamie Vardy, mm. uh, knowing that Mares can hit those fifty yard passes because they do play a lot of intricate football at times. There was an amazing move later on in the game. Was it mm. after the goal? Yeah, which uh, culminated in it looked like a penalty. Yeah, which which wasn't awarded, but a lot of, a lot of their goals also come from these. And a lot of the ways they open up defenses come from Vardy's movement off the ball and him, for whatever reason, being isolated against defenders. Uh, defenders, I think people are still underrating Vardy when they're playing against them. Mm. You know, even the other day, it's, ah, he's, well, he won't score from there, will he? <laughs> well, I mean, it's insane to score from there. Um, sure, but if you're against Sergio Aguero in that situation, you're going to You still wouldn't he, expect he him might, to score. He, he might shoot. Well, would you? I don't know. Most most people just wouldn't shoot from there. Yeah. I mean, Vardy explained that he thought Mignogna was off his line. Vardy, I mean... 
I think Vardy was kind of saying this as well because he doesn't like goalkeepers who come off the line. You know, it's it's like stay on your line. Well, it's insulting to him. It's like a tennis player taking a taking a service and standing on the service, sort of in the service. No, box it's it's that they're they're trying to totally disrespecting. Squeeze. The they're trying to squeeze his space. You know, I mean, yeah. he's he's running through a lot, and goalkeepers are trying to get out and do the sweeper keeper thing. And Vardy's just kind of saying to them, "Don't do that," <laughs> uh, because. Uh, I will beat you. Just as he was taking the shot, when I looked at the replay, I started questioning the nearest defender. Who, God, God, he was a bit off there. Lovering, yeah, yeah, but I think if you were a defender, you'd be happy if your striker was shooting from there, particularly right. if you have the pace, if you're up against the pace of Vardy, because if you, as a defender, commit yourself, particularly there, if, if, if Vardy, you think he's going to shoot and he's dumbing the shot and he puts it past you, he's got the pace to kind of embarrass you and there's enough space behind that he, that, that he can create a proper chance for himself. So usually you think of... If you can limit your striker to scoring from that angle and from that distance, you know, you're know you okay. The um, Just to clarify, the Forest actually did win the league their first season back. They got promoted and won the title immediately, so that's what they did. But on the on Leicester, I mean, what are the differences between the team that was bottom of the league this time last year and this team now? Basically, the difference is Robert Hoot, uh, Christian Fuchs, uh, N'Golo Kante, and... Shinji Okazaki. That's basically it. Mm. Okazaki doesn't even play all the time. So really you're talking about three first-team players who've come in, the left-back, centre-back, and central midfielder. And that's the difference between this team and the team that absolutely everybody was thrashing last season. And a new manager. New manager. And a, and a striker, like the a top scorer. Yeah. A fellow who's hitting the form of his life. Yeah. Completely unexpectedly, but like, he's the difference. He's, he's phenomenal. And I, I don't know how you can explain, that, well, like it, it's not unusual to see a striker all of a sudden have like a breakthrough season, but we expect to see that in your early 20s, like Harry Kane a couple of years ago, got our last season, got all the goals and you think, right, well, that's the trajectory you'd expect of a top player to, to show that form in his early 20s. What's Friday, 29? Uh, I don't know if he's quite 29. Yeah, he's he 29, is, yeah. 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 He is, yeah. So it's, you usually think that by 29 a player has, has, has found his level or you, you know what to expect. That's the only surprising thing that he's he's done it so late and so emphatically. So is he playing way above his ability at the moment or is this something that must always have been there and he's whatever way he's done it, he's just untapped it this year? I don't know. Like I, I did... The, the closest thing I, I had to that, my own personal experience, I, I spent a couple of years like, mainly struggling with various different injuries, really low self-confidence. Um, other players were, were better than me, were getting picked. And then I had a season where I think I got about 16 goals by New Year's Day. And, and I was playing every week, injury-free, bags full of confidence. I was physically fitter than I'd been. And I was in a team that was doing well. The team spirit was brilliant. The manager believed in me. Um, but there was nothing specifically different. Like there was nothing that you could look from a distance and say, well, this is what I've done differently to change my game. It just, it, it, everything just came together, in, in like brilliantly, and it, and it was great fun, and there was a whole momentum around the club, and we, we it, it was it was brilliant fun to be there. Mm. A lot of the elements were there twelve months earlier. The same manager, you know, it was the same, the same, same ability, all those things, but just. Things just worked out, and I, and I can't be any more specific as to why I had that. Did, did you analyze that at the time? Analyze why you were playing well, or was it just I'll ride this wave and not think too much about it? No, I don't think I did any. You, you just you're just, just riding just it at the time. Yeah, yeah. You're just going around with this big smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you ruin that? Lucky, socks, a... lucky socks, right boot on first, something like that. No, but my, my strike partner at the time, Steve Claridge, was 
had a load of superstitions and, and he had a particular pre-match routine that would get him going. We, we, we worked really well together, did no work ourselves as a partnership on the training ground at all. In games, things just seems to work out well. And we, we, we were supported by a midfield who were in really good form. Everyone was f- the fittest they'd ever been, full of self-belief. The crowd are fully behind us. A manager would come in who, who'd made a big difference to us all. So there was a combination of factors, um, which we all individually benefited really well. And uh, But the question that I would ask in relation to Leicester now is, though, when... You know, you, you kind of say, well, you know, just ride the wave now. You know, you're in, Jamie Vardy's in good form. You just ride the wave now. But, like, it's actually four months between now and the end of the league. You know, it's it's probably, it's a lot to ask Jamie Vardy to not think about <laughs> his amazing, uh, you know, once-in-a-lifetime season that he's having for four months. You know, you, you can't even say it's like 14 games. It's It's four months of this guy's life to not start thinking too much. Him and Leicester City as a team to not start thinking about it and just keep playing the way they're playing with the freedom that they're playing with. Well, I, I think you're right that, that it's impossible that they wouldn't think about it because it's the one topic that every single person will be talking to them about. Anyone who meets Jamie Vardy now will will immediately talk about his his form and his, his scoring record, the Euros coming up, is he going to be a Premier League winner, will he win the Golden Boot, all of those things, they're unavoidable, but you can, you can, you can manage them. Like whether, I don't know what their policy is within the club you know sometimes you hear clubs who are in a relegation fight or pushing from Europe you know, certain words are banned in the training ground all that kind of stuff and um, maybe they just have a right who's next in the fixture list that's all we're going to talk about we're only we're, we've Arsenal up next that's all we're going to talk about um, and, and maybe because whatever they're doing it's working and if they're maybe like pressures it, it's, it's kind of about perspective really isn't it like they've maybe their their starting position is the fans aren't going to turn on us if we don't pull this off. The manager isn't going to get sacked. There isn't a big budget there that we're all going to be replaced if we don't win this. There's no expectation on us. We were actually expected to get relegated. This is all bonus territory. Yeah, so there's actually no pressure. Let's no, like, there's, 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 there's tons of pressure. The, there, we there, see, but there's there's only de- a few allowed. are definitely going to choke. It's only a few allowed. They're definitely going to careen off the rails. You say choke, so does that mean if they're not winning the Premier League, you'll put it down exclusively to a psychological failing? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's also the um, the fact that, that uh, they're not necessarily as good in all the games as they are in the bigger games. Um, I mean, we were talking about this uh, recently with them, the way in which, sometimes, in, in a sense, they almost find it easier against a team like Liverpool, uh, who will at least make you know, some effort to beat them. Then, for instance, they played Aston Villa and they True. drew with Aston yeah. Villa. You know, they drew nil nil with uh, with Bournemouth. Uh, they're the teams. They're they're obviously teams that they should be beating, and I think they're going to have problems, increasingly problems with those type of games as it goes on. Um, the kind of basic football that they play. Um, I mean, it's just the the Vardy goal the other night was ridiculous. You, that is just not going to... You can't rely on that happening. Jamie Vardy is not Lionel Messi. Sure, you know? but, but then He's he, not capable of doing but that. Then, but then he scores a scruffy enough second goal. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So he... Okay, sure, they scored that outrageous goal. It's not going to happen again in the season. But he's also there to finish off uh, another... You know, a less impressive goal. Is that not... Is that not enough to convince you that they actually... They're not reliant on fluke moments? All his goals aren't... They have unexplainable like that, like, no. potential best of his career goals. I mean, in, in, you know, in one way, it was quite similar to a lot of his goals this season in that you know, there was a long pass up to him where he, he gets there first and scores. And that's been 
what he's been doing all season, I, I guess. But I just can't see this. Uh, just There's so many players playing so well and so little to back them up when you compare it to Man City, for instance, who just have so many players. Yeah, well, the assumption is always that the injuries and suspensions arrive yeah. and then you get screwed, but they, they happen, their main players haven't been getting injured it's gonna, yet. It's, it's coming down the line. It's, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. This is going to... This is going to end. Uh, yeah, the rules are going to reassert themselves. Leicester City cannot defy gravity. Well, yeah, but there, wasn't there some something I saw? Uh, God, it was about the, the amount of games left, potential games left. Leicester have 14. 14 games left in the season. Man City have upwards, uh, up up, on, up to 30 or 32. Arsenal have uh, 30 or 32 games left. Now, mm. Arsenal are playing Barcelona in the last 16 of the Champions League, so we can probably scrub you know, nine mm. of those. But at the same time, you know, is it that wacky that over the course of four, four and a half months that they could play 14 games and not get any injuries? That doesn't sound to me like a, you know, like an unsustainable workload. Uh, they get this, they get suspensions, you know, I mean... You're not they, giving them a chance, are you? I don't know. I, I can't. I, I just can't believe that they could win the league. I just can't believe that this squad could actually win the league. Yeah. I always find, though, that in, in this sort of a situation, rather than looking at Leicester... Construct a watertight argument for Man City winning the league or Arsenal winning the league, and it gets a, it, that gets quite complicated as well. Well, you can't make a watertight argument really for any of those teams, but there's three teams within striking distance of Leicester at the moment, within kind of touching distance of Leicester, and I just think they're all better than Leicester and can't really see how ultimately Leicester can finish ahead of all three of them. It's not really a watertight case for Man City so much as a watertight case for one of those other teams. Mm. You know, the, but one of those teams is Tottenham. You yeah. know, another one of those teams is Arsenal. <laughs> well, Tottenham have better players than Leicester, though. Oh yeah, well, well so, yeah, so but I mean, like, I mean, Harry Kane is clearly better than Jamie Vardy. Yeah, he is uh, based on his well, his relatively short career, but it's this season. It's what's happening this season on a consistent basis, mm. and there's no signs of it slowing down. It's weird. It's you, you sound like you, you wouldn't be that enthused by Leicester winning the league. I no, it would be. It would, it would be amazing. It would be incredible. But I just can't believe. I'm. I call me doubting Thomasone. I just don't believe mm-hmm. what I'm. What I'm seeing here. Well, I believe what I've seen so far, but I can't believe that it's just going to continue in this way. If they get one win in the next two in these two big games, will you believe then? Um, take more than that. Well, I mean, I'll definitely be. If I was Arsenal, we'll I would again. be we'll talk scared again out of my mind. Arsenal, to Arsenal would be. Are Man City going to be scared? No. What no. if? Man, I mean, I could see Man City beating them four 0 Could you? you? Know? Absolutely. Yeah, I could see a proper. <laughs> you know, I mean, Man City are at home. They always like that. I mean, Man City are, are kind of a, a sluggish, stagnant kind of a team that doesn't have any real intensity about it, and, and they lack leadership. Here, they have got a really big game. This is like. Okay, this is a this is a big game. This is against the league leaders. This is a chance to. I guess they go top of the league if they win, and they just three points behind. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, you know, so this is a big game, even for Man City. This is the kind of game that I think could get Man City's juices flowing, in uh, in a way that you know doesn't happen that often. All right. The other big news of the week is Pep Guardiola taking over at Manchester City, and almost immediately the focus switched because everyone knew that was going to happen the focus switched to what are Manchester United going to do and it seems like United supporters themselves in a lot of cases feel the need to react that need is probably going to be filled by Jose Mourinho taking over at some stage but we got a tweet from Cahill who messaged us to say 
Manchester United are no longer Manchester United. Since when did they look at Man City without any sense of pity? They do now. They feel inferior. They no longer act with what Manchester United with that Manchester United attitude. Now they look at Man City and think, oh dear, they have Pep. What do we need to do now? He goes on to say, I believe that Manchester United, uh, there's no longer a belief in themselves. Ken has recently spoken about the limited pool of managers that they could pick from Pep, Jose and Giggs. I believe the reason the pool is so small isn't for the reasons offered up by Ken, proven track record in the Champions League, or in Giggs' case, a company man. It's something to do with a crippling lack of confidence at board level. They know how the fans would react if they took a manager from Japan, Wenger, or Southampton, Pochettino, or Greece after he lost to the Faroe Islands, Claudio Ranieri at Leicester. My thoughts on Manchester United at the moment are that it all stems from a lack of identity. What do you think? I'd, I'd agree with a lot of that. I, 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 my first reaction was when I saw confirmation of the Guardiola point was, you know, what's the reaction going to be at Man United? I, it was straight away, and I did immediately assume, oh God, the pressure now on them is to get Mourinho yeah. for all, just for the, the the optics of it all. And we're still as big a club as City. Yeah, we, we we need to make a statement. We need to hire one manager who is you know domestically has beaten Guardiola in the past at, at, when they were up against each other in Spain. His profile, his winning record, blah blah blah. Um, and that they'll park all the possible doubts or reservations you might have about what Marino brings to the table and just focus on the fact that um, he is a superstar appointment, has won all the trophies that Man United want to win, so he's a, it's a no-brainer. Is that a lack of identity? Uh, I, is Carl correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, mm. I mean, there's a there's a there's a really kind of desperate, reactive kind of quality to a lot of what Manchester United. Are doing these it's days. like that seven Ed Woodward's article that you referenced last week. That was very funny by Andy Thomas. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a very good article. Um, the seven Ed Woodward's sit down to discuss policy. <laughs> they they each have different ideas. You know, I think number one is like, uh, you know, wants to get on the phone to Mendez. You know, number two, I can't remember exactly which is which, but what number two is like, well, do we really need to do it? Are things really that bad? Number three wants to stick with Van Hal. Number four is like, Giggs is obviously the man we should go for. Uh, number five is like, just get Mourinho in, just get Mourinho. Uh, and number seven isn't saying anything until eventually he just explodes at the end, saying, "It's don't you understand? It's already dead. The whole thing smells of death. This is what just what happens. We're paying the price for twenty years now." And everyone is kind of like freaked out a little bit. Yeah, good article. Um, and I think. Something like that is what's actually happening. <laughs> <laughs> a version of that. Just all the voices in Ed Woodward's head. I don't really believe there are six other Ed Woodward's, but I think he is conflicted. He's not sure which way to go. You know, he hears voices in his head telling him what to do. Sometimes the voice is coming in through his ear from his mobile phone, uh, from George <laughs> Mendes's mobile phone. <laughs> but, you know, this competing... Uh, Competing agendas there. Well, there would be an argument that they were confident enough to pick David Moyes at that time. They were sure enough in their identity that, that they could pick a manager. No, seriously, at the time, they felt they could pick a manager who had absolutely no experience at the top of the game, had never managed in the Champions League, which is quite sure he's been, he had been around the league, but it was a risk and was proven to be so. So were they scarred by the Moyes experience? What exactly? Why, why have they lost the sure-footedness that they had uh, when Ferguson retired? Um, with the, the, the certainty that Moyes was the man, because Ferguson told them, pick mm -hmm. Moyes. They did what they were told. Yeah, so, so it was still the Ferguson identity. That's what it was. The, yeah. uh, the Manchester United identity was purely about Alex Ferguson. Uh, I'm not even talking about on the field, but how the club was run. Yeah, well, Ferguson evidently believed at that time that Moyes would be capable of doing something akin to what he'd been doing for 
a long time. And obviously he was wrong about that. But now you've got this big uh, uh, profit-driven uh, business with a, you know, which is headed by somebody who doesn't really, he doesn't really have expertise in football, who's, who's going to obviously be kind of inclined to take a conservative course of action. He's not going to take any mad risks. What if Ed Woodward was to make some mad managerial appointment that, that was totally out of left field that nobody had considered before? He's sitting there next to his unknown uh, coach that he's plucked from obscurity in like the Austrian league. Exactly, yeah. And, and he's saying, this is the man he's going to... What credibility would, would this guy arrive with? The guy could be brilliant, but Ed Woodward doesn't have the, the credibility. If he was Alex Ferguson saying, this is the man, then people might be willing to give the guy 10 games, mm -hmm. you know? But Ed Woodward is, is in a position where he's like, all right, who is, who's a safe pair of hands here? So I can concentrate on uh, making money and keeping my job. Because, you know, obviously it's about ultimately keeping your job. You don't want to be this, the guy who's sacked in disgrace. If he was to go out on a limb and, and pick someone, uh, at, you know, out of left field, someone who wasn't on this really tiny short list of, of Galactico coaches, then he's taking a massive risk with his job. That guy fails. What, what was that mad appointment by Ed Woodward all about? And, and that guy will come in with the burden of being described as the man who was favoured over Jose Mourinho. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And there's a pressure. If the United job in itself doesn't bring enough pressure, particularly the way United are now, particularly in the backdrop of Guardiola going to City, he will be the one who has to demonstrate why he, he got the job over Mourinho. And so Mourinho's both like the, 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 the riskiest and most volatile appointment they could make because of his personality and what he's done in, in recent times. But he's also, in a way, the kind of the safest because he, he ticks all the boxes. He ticks. Yeah, nearly them all. If if you you want to present yourself as you know, we're making a statement that's gonna kind of front up the city. There's there's like sticking with Van Hal is just like waving the white flag. Just going right. Well, you've got Guardiola, and he's gonna bring certain players. Despite the three 0 victory against Stoke, even despite beating Stoke and Derby County in the one week. See, the thing is, I think it's what what Richie's saying there. You know, he ticks the boxes. I mean, there's a, obviously there's a reason why they didn't hire him before. And that has to do, I think, with a distaste on, on behalf of some of the some of the more um, yeah, well, Ferguson and Charlton, I think, uh, for the way that Mourinho comports himself. They don't like him. They think that he is a uh, kind of trashy. He's a sort of a trashy figure, and he's not the right type of man to manage Manchester United. But unfortunately. Those kind of concerns are going to have to be parked now because all the other people have all the other people come with bigger risks. The risk with Jose Mourinho is that he will come in, tear the club apart from within, and depart, leaving behind an acrid, festering swamp of, of resentment and division. Okay, that doesn't sound good. On the other hand, if you look at Jose Mourinho's record, the clubs that he's left, you know, he has left behind a Chelsea team which hung together pretty well, actually. Pretty durable Chelsea team. It went on to win titles. It went on to win the Champions League. You know, it wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad setup that he left behind. Real Madrid won the Champions League the year after he left with his squad supposedly, you know, at each other's throats, or at least at his throat. Um, so it wasn't as though he left behind a big mess there either. He, he unified that dressing room by leaving it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, he, he, it was like the splinter was pulled out of the foot of the dressing room. <laughs> yeah. At Inter, you could say, okay, they fell apart badly after he left. 
On the other hand, he won the treble. It, it was a miracle the, job. It was a miracle treble job. Inter. Inter. Yeah. It's like it's the greatest achievement <laughs> of any coach in the history of Inter Milan. He won the league uh, two seasons in a row, and then he won the treble, which absolutely nobody thought they could do. He's won the title, by the way, at all these clubs. I mean, Manchester United would take that. Manchester United would take that in a second. Will we win the title in the next two seasons? Yes. Okay. Will he leave behind a, a, a ruin with everybody hating each other? Yes. Okay, we'll, where do we sign? They would take that deal right now if it was offered. And maybe he won't even go that mad this time. That's always the eternal hope. <laughs> yeah, I don't think United are in the position where they can start questioning the manner in which they want their next manager to win the league. No. Or, 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 or the, the behaviour of the manager on the touchline when they're competing in the semi-finals or the finals of the Champions League. Um, obviously, there's a cost at Marino who, who brings certain baggage, but you'd pick him you, if you were Ed Woodward. If you were one of the Ed Woodwards, what was your phrase the other day in the podcast? They owe it to football. I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be too much fun not to. Richie, brilliant stuff. Leicester to win this weekend, beat Man City. Well, they won't lose four 0 like okay. Ken said. That's a bold prediction by Richie. <laughs> yeah. Sander. Thanks so much. See you, lads. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player. Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a wobble. I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a wobble. Well, it's just the, the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a wobble. You wanted victory. Well, I want that victory. Which is the game you want that victory, boy? Didn't have a wobble. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby and you cannot call a player a baby. If Mourinho does take over at Manchester United, is the general consensus that this is bad news for Giggs? For Ryan Giggs? Uh, well, I, I, I... How do you mean? Well, is, is he gone with a new broom? I, coming I in? assume so. Or is he further groomed as he has been under Ferguson and, well, more particularly, Moyes, I don't know how much of grooming has gone there, but under um, Van Gaal. Well, I mean, even for the man's... How much I mean, how, grooming how, can, can a man take? Like can, a, can pride, a man's... From a pride element alone, I mean, to sit there for under a third manager as, you know, sort of just shaking his head every time a goal goes in. I mean, I, I, I don't know that if Ryan Giggs has any pride whatsoever that he could possibly act as an understudy to Jose Mourinho. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, he, I don't see what's different in itself from acting as an understudy to Mourinho compared to Moyes or Van Hal. Oh, but to oh, do yeah, it again... Yeah, yeah, it's just a third different manager. I yeah, mean, He's it's... risking becoming like the Tony Parks of Manchester United. You know, you know like Tony Black Parks? Guy, yeah. yeah, this like club stalwart at, Black, at Blackburn. Man, managed them you know, 14 times every, for a week or two. Every, yeah, every, every time Blackburn needed a caretaker manager... Tony Park stepped up and then made way for the for the next side. But like, I, I think Giggs might be getting over groomed if he was to if he if he was to you know stay there under Mourinho as well. That like you're talking about serious like it's just way over over moisturized, over depilated, you know, f facial hair that takes too long to do every morning. 
you know, some kind of weird hairstyle. Too much grooming. Jose could do worse and bring Gary Neville in then, maybe. If he's going to move as, a, as an assistant, Neville's having a bad time but at Valencia at the moment. Still hasn't won a game, is that right? Still hasn't won a league game. Still hasn't won a league game and took a 7-0 beating by Barcelona last night. There was also a testy press conference faced by Gary Neville afterwards. It seems like the Spanish journalists have a few Rottweilers in their contingent. Here's a small taser. You've mentioned that you haven't thought about resigning, but tonight's humiliation. The other day, so you, somebody asked you a question and you said you thought it was ridiculous. Let me repeat that question. Uh, do you think it would be logical for you to be dismissed after Valencia's performance tonight? Next question, please. Aquí. Over here, coach. I'm sorry, but I, I need to ask in line with this. The softest uh, uh, adjective is humiliation, is shame. And you're the coach. It is only logical that one would ask you. You said that you haven't thought about uh, stepping down, but would you understand if you got sacked? Because ever since you got here, the team has not only not improved, but is worse. But uh, I'm sorry, out of respect, uh, but then you said the other day that the Valencia supporters haven't said uh, for you to go. That, there you go, yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, at the end, uh, you could hear, the voice you could hear there was that of the, the interpreter, who was, uh, that's, that was the audio, obviously it was a Spanish journalist asking a question in Spanish, but you were hearing the voice of the interpreter there putting the question that he was putting to Gary Neville. Neville had been asked already to whether he was thinking about resigning, he just said, next question. So that guy then came back uh, with these, uh, it, it was a different journalist this time, he came back with those two questions. Neville was, as you could hear the first time, just batted it away again. And the, the third time the question was asked, as you heard, went on for a long time. And before the guy had even got to the end of it, Neville was essentially going, you know, shut this guy up. You know, I'm not, I've already said I'm not answering this question. Forget it. So that was why it's, you heard it suddenly cut off at the end. But it, it wasn't a very comfortable situation. No, things getting a little bit tough. And we'll get over to Spain to talk about this with Ed Malian, who, uh, who covers football in the country. Ed, the 7-0 defeat followed by that press conference. Are things getting a little bit poisonous now for Neville? Well, well, yes, uh, basically. I think uh, the the anger isn't necessarily towards Neville, although his press conference last night seems to have irritated quite a few people around Valencia. The The, the problem is that the club, uh, there's a lot of fans here who have had to deal with the, the club kind of falling apart over the last few years and getting into huge debt. Now what we're seeing is uh, you've got Peter Lim's taken over. They've done well for a season under Nuno with the help of George Mendes, got into the Champions League. Everyone's happy with that. But as soon as it's taken a downward turn, everyone's very angry. Nuno's out the door. People weren't necessarily unhappy about that. But now you've got uh, a lot of anger towards the players, a lot of anger towards Peter Lim. Um, Neville was kind of third on that list before. But the way he went about his press conference last night seems to have annoyed a lot of the, the Valencian journalists uh, who have called it arrogant, have called it an insult. You know, they weren't pleased. But the actual performance itself... I think uh, as good as Barcelona were, Valencia kind of gave up and this is what they're calling one of Valencia's worst ever defeats. Yeah, I mean, watching uh, Neville last night, I think, I mean, maybe you can tell me what what these Valencia journalists, if you're speaking to any of them, were particularly annoyed by, but, but I was struck by the kind of high-handedness with which he dealt with uh, some questions about, you know, have you considered your position? Are you, are you going to resign? And, and he just shut those questions down and it was it was pretty obvious who he was trying to channel there. 
Uh, but the difference between Gary Neville and Sir Alex Ferguson is that when Sir Alex Ferguson arrogantly dismissed questions from a journalist or, or said, you know, we're not getting into that, he did so from a position of authority, you know, where he'd won, you know, 13 league titles and, and the Champions League and so on, whereas Gary Neville hasn't even won a game in the league. Yeah, I think uh, he's obviously, I mean, he came in and he was ashen-faced. He's obviously had an immense amount of pressure on him now because I was there on Sunday when they outplayed Sporting Gijon and managed to somehow lose that game 1-0. Everything's going against him at the moment pretty much, except the Cup. The Cup is where he's he's got four wins. It's the only tournament he's kept a clean sheet in. That's where things have been going okay for him. So for this to suddenly happen in the Cup, I, uh, I asked him on Sunday, I said, is, you know, is the Cup the only bright spot in the season now? And he gave me the kind of typical manager answer about the bright spot is that the team's coming together and everything's getting better and all this sort of stuff and kind of tried to insist that the cup wasn't the only good thing about their their year obviously what happened last night this tie is over they're out of the Copa del Rey before we've even set foot on the on the Mistaya ground for the second half this cup tie was probably over at half time but now what is there for Valencia this season they're almost in a relegation battle and that's why he was under so much pressure because he he knew that and when he came out they don't mess about the, the local press here. They really went for him. Uh, the first question to ask if he was going to resign was kind of quite nice. It was a, a female journalist asked it in, in a nice way. The, the second one was not so nice. And the third one was immediately afterwards. And, and he said, right, if you're not going to answer my colleague's question about uh, resigning, do you not think you should be sacked? And he said, <laughs> you know, he said, next, next question. And he, and he moved on. The, the atmosphere was so tense in the room it was that you just couldn't wait for someone to ask the next question because there was no way really around it that he knew that a lot of people in that room thought that he should be resigning right there which is obviously quite a difficult thing to, to cope with yeah i mean he, he said he went on to say towards the end i last had doubts as a player 18 years ago and from that moment on i developed a mechanism to deal with situations like this i thought to myself gary neville has surely never lost seven nil before since he was a senior professional this is this is a first time event in his life. What kind of mechanism might he be talking about? That was it. That was an interesting thing that he said. Um, I was talking to Jamie Carragher afterwards, who'd come over for the game, uh, and he. I did ask him about that, and he said he, he didn't know. He said players have lots of different ways of coping with things, and sometimes it's just kind of insane level of focus, and sometimes it's you know you shut everything else out, and or sometimes it's you look at a wider picture and you kind of take yourself away from the group. There's all sorts of little things that people do to try and focus in in football games. I thought that was interesting, but last night wasn't really the time to kind of further quiz him on it. Um, he can't have had a... I can't remember any sort of defeat like that for, for Gary Neville as a player. I mean, he said that himself. He said it's one of the worst nights of his, his footballing career. He's had bad experiences as a player and he's now had some bad experiences as a manager. Whether... He, I mean, for me, I think he he will recover from this, but probably not at Valencia. I think what's happening here, there's nothing he can do now here that will be, ever be deemed a success because the likelihood of his, him getting his contract extended is quite slim now. So you're thinking all he can do is get them back up towards the European places with a few wins, but if they're not in Europe, then there's no success. We all know, so, yeah, but so, uh, just uh, it, it's interesting that it almost seems like a done deal now that he won't get the contract renewed at Valencia and then it's all a complete failure because we've seen how sharp a football intellect this guy has over the years. We saw while he was playing that he was he had big leadership qualities and he's also 
uh, done his coaching and has coached with England. So is it purely a communication or c- cultural issue that he's not succeeding in Spain? I'd say, um, first of all, he's had some bad luck. He has had some bad luck. Um, there are games where, you know, basically the times that he's got the good luck so far this season, it's it's won them a point. And the times they've got bad luck, it's cost them three, uh, which obviously doesn't help. But the cultural thing, less so. It, it's language, yes. Um, there was a, a couple of videos that Valencia put on their website, which I watched, um, of training session, and, and you probably heard everyone t- saying that Phil Neville's got great Spanish and, and all this sort of stuff. And from what I've seen, that's not exactly true. He's just got better Spanish than Gary Neville. Uh, and there was a moment when, when they were doing a little rondo where they passed it around in a circle. And Phil Neville kind of went a bit hard. On, no, another player went a bit hard on, on someone. And Phil Neville was basically jokingly trying to tell them off. And then he realised he couldn't get the words. He couldn't find the words to say it. And then there was kind of a 15-second pause while everyone just kind of stands around while Phil's trying to create what he wants to say. And then everyone falls about laughing. Now it's fine. You know, in that, in that instance, it's not a big deal. But when you're at the elite level of sport and you're trying to teach a team one of the hardest things in the world, which is how to keep Barca out, you know, how to try and deal with that front line, you need to be incredibly specific. You need to be incredibly accurate with your instructions. You need to be having the perfect game plan and being able to execute it and pass that on to your players. Obviously, what we saw last night is that didn't happen at all. Uh, so that's where you're going to have the language issues. I've done some coaching in Spanish, so the, uh, so the same sort of thing, and it's it's hard, but nowhere near that elite level. Mm-hmm. I think they're finding out now that it, it's truly a very difficult thing to do. And I, I say, I think Neville will succeed somewhere because uh, I think he's got it in him. But uh, the, the contract thing, I can't see him getting extended. At the start, he didn't seem to want it extended. Then, somewhat politically, he said, no, no, I want to be here for a long time. I wouldn't be surprised to see Mourinho, Pellegrini, maybe even Kike Sanchez-Flores there next season. We should mention, with, with due respect to Gary Neville, that he lost 7-0 last night not to not just any team. I mean, this is a team which has, I think, the three best players in the world all playing in the same position in the team. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, last night, uh, it, it was an unusual game because usually if a team is 3-0 up at halftime against a side that's just had a man set off, you know how it finishes. It finishes 3-0 or maybe 4-0 as they, yeah, four, four as they five, s- yeah. slack off. This They just kept going, and it seemed like the thing that was keeping them going was almost just a sense of how many nice goals can we score and maybe maybe a bit of competition between Suarez and Messi to see who can score more, but mainly it was just they were kind of enjoying themselves. I mean, it was unbelievable to watch. Uh, are they, in your opinion, the best team that there's ever been? Well, I, I see the this season. Uh, did you see the game against Roma in the Champions League? Uh, that was I that think was probably six, six nil at home. It ended up being six one because 6-1. Roma got a last minute consolation goal. But basically, Barcelona then in that night it was some of the best football I've ever seen. I think probably in my lifetime. I can't remember seeing a team do that to a high class club like Roma and just absolutely shredding them time after time after time. It could have been double figures. Uh, I, I, I said to people last night, I said, what kind of percentage was this being Barcelona being really good and what percentage was Valencia being really bad? And most people had Barcelona being good as, as a, a far bigger thing than Valencia being bad, which won't be much help for Gary Neville. But you've got to remember, this is, I think, better than the, the Guardiola 2019 for me. 
they're just so potent in attack that if they do turn it on, there's there's nothing you can do. There's not the death by a thousand passes. It, this is more like death by a thousand goals, you know. Mm-hmm. And they are smashing teams when they play like that. The three best performances for me this season: that Roma game, exceptional; the Classico, obviously, uh, smashing but, uh, Real Madrid in their own backyard. But even that wasn't as good as as last night in terms of attacking football because they just rip teams to shreds when they're playing like that and. I think it's special, and I think uh, they could be the first team to go back-to-back in the Champions League. I think Neymar might even beat Messi to the Ballon d'Or if he carries on like this, and I think it's just a pleasure to watch them. Absolutely. Listen, Ed, great to talk to you. Thanks, Mel. No worries, mate. That was Ed Malian there with a great training ground story <laughs> regarding the limits of poor Phil Neville's Spanish. Yeah. Maybe not quite all it was cracked up to be. Yeah, well, look, it's difficult for anyone to learn a language in that space of time I mean we do we do remember Phil Neville trying to play the yes no game in English in English the game where you're asked a series of questions and you're not allowed to say either yes or no Mm. and Phil Neville I mean there was moments when he carefully deliberated like ruminated on the question to, as he tried to pick his way through the minefield and then cautiously tentatively would say yes <laughs> so there were you know I, I don't know I mean it's, it's hard I wouldn't expect him to be fluent in Spanish after you know less than less than two years at his stage of life I think you know what I mean yeah. um, so it's always going to be a very difficult job for Gary Neville no shortage of self-belief from the man but now in a in a difficult situation, and situation that he doesn't control. Sorry to cut across you yeah. there as well. He strikes me as kind of, he likes to be in control. He likes he works hard to be on top of situations as he is in his punditry. I mean, the reason he's comfortable and articulate is because he does a lot of work to get into that position, and that he then has a lot of control over it. And even in the exchanges with Jamie Carragher, I always feel Neville tended to be the one feeling more comfortable there that you know when it comes to it I've got I've got control of this one suppose the tables were turned there the other night what do you think what do you think he would have thought of the side of Jamie Carragher's little face beaming back up at him from the <laughs> crowd of journalists in the press conference I don't know if, if Cargo Carragher necessarily went in there yeah. to to watch his old buddy Sorry, I could have cost squirming you not at all no that was I was just going to say similar point. imagine how delighted he must have been to see, Garrett, oh. uh, see Jamie Carragher um, just one other thing for the weekend, Alan. There's uh, a plan apparently to uh, walk out at Anfield for the first time ever. Uh, the supporter group, the supporters groups, are trying to organise this in protest at the ticket prices. You know, they've, they've got this new stand, uh, which is going to be open for next season. Um, they're building it at the moment, and they're putting up a lot of the ticket prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the 77 minute because I think the most expensive ticket has gone up to, or the top price ticket has gone up to 77. Um, uh, up from 59. But weren't there a lot of initiatives? It was one of these ones where the news was spun a certain way by Liverpool who uh, were essentially saying, oh look, we've consulted with the, the supporters in this one and we've all compromised and it's great because look at all these brilliant new initi- initiatives we've done to try to get more young people and to try to have more cheap tickets, etc. Whereas Liverpool, support the supporters group are saying that's nonsense. They've uh, they've brought us to the table and then completely ignored all, all of our suggestions. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I remember when we had did an interview with Ian Eyre, <clears throat> this was one of the things he was talking about, and he was he obviously didn't give any commitment to not put on ticket prices. But it seems crazy to me that they keep doing this. 
uh, and I don't mean just Liverpool, I mean all of the clubs. In it's, I mean, the idea of putting up ticket price, obviously they've been doing it steadily for the last 25 years. You know, that's been, after a long period where the price was pretty much flat in line with inflation, the price has massively outstripped, or the price increased and massively outstripped inflation over so the last So you're not, you're not buying years. Liverpool's line that they've frozen a lot of tickets, they've made a lot of categories fr- more, uh, more affordable, they've tried to get more young supporters involved with, with initiatives. That that's just papering over what's essentially ticket rises. Yeah, ticket ticket rises is is ticket price is, re- rises. is really what this is. Now, I think that's insane because they're making they're making so much money now from television. It's so gigantic the the sums of money that are coming in from TV that in proportion the difference that's made by, you know, in, uh, jacking up ticket prices on your fans is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It used to be the main source of income for clubs, but it's now a much smaller overall proportion of their income than the TV and the merchandising. But if you think about TV and you know, so-called commercial income, but if you think about why that income is so big for Premier League clubs, it has everything to do with the fact that these matches are usually taking place in full stadiums in front of crowds who are um, who seem to be interested in what's going on. And it's that they're, what they're paying for is English football, as represented by these, uh, as represented by these full stadiums, these you know singing fans, that kind of atmosphere, which really you don't get in too many other leagues. That's a huge part of what they're selling. These people in the stadiums are, in effect, working for the clubs. They are providing a lot of the value of the product that they're selling. They're working to create a spectacle, which is then sold by the club. You know, for, uh, at ever more for uh, you know to ever greater levels of profit, and they're actually paying the clubs to, for the privilege of doing that, and now they're trying to gouge them even more. It just seems crazy to me. When you look at the stadiums, the one thing that you notice compared to twenty years ago is how much older the crowd is, and that's because younger people can't afford to go. Mm. But if younger people are not going to get into the habit of going, if they're going to be priced out of going right from the beginning, it's not like they're suddenly going to start going along later or you know you're certainly going to have a problem sustaining that kind of fan culture that you've had I think it's really uh, short-sighted and, and stupid of clubs to do this I uh, hope you got a hold of our Six Nations bonus podcast during the week we've got some more build up in our latest show today strong stuff from Matt Williams in that one about the direction the Irish team is taking he's not too impressed about that nor with what he sees as the reluctance of people in Ireland to have a pop at Joe Schmidt uh, also what else in there Super Bowl preview yeah US mm-hmm. Murph live from Radio Row Murph before we wrap things up do you want to maybe just uh, wrap up your Shakespeare <sighs> it was Richard III Richard III really wanted a horse Henry V I'm sure needed horses at various times throughout his life but never put it down on paper no I don't yeah because I, I don't think he was ever sort of abandoned in the middle of a battle needing a quick getaway was he he was too much of a legend. Once more into the breach. Yeah. And everyone was in the breach with him, with horses. What so is, he, he, there was a surfeit of horses, really, if anything. What is the football link between Henry V? Uh, well, what is the link between Henry V and football? Henry V. Through which icon of English manhood did the spirit of Henry V flow from his position in the distant past uh, into uh, the 21st century? Uh, further clue? Uh, uh, a, a captain, an England captain, full of pride, passion, and character. David Beckham. <laughs> oh, Bobby, Bobby imagine, Moore. Imagine David Beckham quoting yeah, well, Henry the Fifth. Uh, you know, uh, Bobby Moore is an international tournament. Mm-hmm. 
He was reading a, a famous speech from Henry V. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Big Terry Butcher? <laughs> There's literally only a couple of these guys. It's not John Terry. It's not Paul Ince. It's not <laughs> Terry Butcher. It's not Brian Robson. Who's left? Uh, you're certain it's not David Beckham. It's definitely not David Beckham. <laughs> how, how far, how early? Euro 2000. Oh, Euro 2000. Who was captain? Alan Shearer. Come on. Tony Adams. Tony Adams. Big tone. Actually, Shearer might actually have been the captain, to be fair. Mm. Maybe that threw you off the scent. Shearer might have been the captain at that stage. A hundred England captains. And, uh, and yet he, he's, he's still given us something. Well, Tony Adams did captain England, though, surely. Uh, I'm pretty, yeah, I, I think he did. Yeah. Well, or maybe he didn't. There was the whole unpleasantness with the jail. Mm. Maybe, you know, England sometimes get a bit snooty about that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe he didn't, but you know he was obviously the the spiritual captain, if not necessarily the official one. And he he read out read out Henry V's speech just before England went out and got uh, hammered by Portugal. I think Tony Adams definitely captain England because remember the his book was every the start of every chapter was I captained every team I ever played for. He was very proud of that fact. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that Tony Adams uh, would yeah no he's there he's there he's there is yeah. He? Uh, maybe not as many times as you would have liked with Alan Shearer knocking around the place. All right, that's it. We'll uh, wrap things up. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank, thank you, you Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks a million for listening. We'll talk to you. Enjoy the weekend. Amazing sporting weekend between uh, the Super Bowl, a couple of massive games in the Premier League, Six Nations, loads going on. We'll talk to you again on Monday. What's going on? 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 What's